Hello. We are so glad that you have chosen to stream this audio, and we hope it will encourage you in your faith and your walk towards Christ-likeness. As a side note, we pray that this audio sermon is just supplemental in your relationship with Christ, and in no way replaces the church you are plugged into or the pastor that God has put in your life to shepherd and care for your soul. And so with that said, please enjoy this sermon. We have prayed that God would use it in your life. Good morning. Welcome to Jefferson Town Baptist Church. We are so glad that you are here with us uh, to worship both in song and in uh, the reading of his word. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Andrew Reese, and I am not the pastor. Uh, as, Grant, as Grant has alluded to, uh, Luke is out of town this weekend, and so you're stuck with me. Uh, but fortunately, you're not just stuck with me, because we do have the word of God with us this morning. So we are thankful for that. I have the privilege of serving here as a youth pastor, youth minister at, uh, at JBC, and this morning I have the privilege of bringing to you the truth from the message of God. So we're continuing in our series on the book of Romans, and, and this has been done before, but let's once again provide a big picture of the book of Romans. As lengthy as this book and this series is, we know that this was written as one individual letter, and it would have been read uh, originally in its entirety. So before we focus on the trees, let's look at the forest. The first 11 chapters, Paul expounds on and defends the gospel of Jesus Christ through the righteousness of God. Paul does this through showing that we need this revelation of God's saving righteousness because without it, we are exposed to the wrath of God because of our sin. But God has set forth his own son as the atoning sacrifice so that we may be justified. That is, we may be made righteous through the redemption provided by Jesus Christ. Yet, this faith, this grace, this justification does not indicate moral uh, anarchy or moral rebellion, as, uh, as Paul uh, relates to us in chapter 6. Uh, but now we serve a new master. We are now slaves to God and slaves to his righteousness. And then finally, within the context of explaining and defending the gospel of Christ, uh, Paul explains to the church of Rome what this means and what this implies for uh, the Jews and the nation of Israel. Following this gospel proclamation in chapters 1 through 11, Paul explains what this new righteousness means for everyday life and certain implications, uh, behavioral implications for Christians. We conduct ourselves differently, being transformed by the power of the gospel. So after 11 chapters of mainly focusing on God's saving work for us, we make a turn to God's saving work in us as he transforms us to do his will. Paul begins this new thread uh, by starting in chapter 12 and, and by urging them to do, as we heard from Brother Grant, what is holy and pleasing to God. What does this look like? Well, if we look at the broader section that begins in 12 and goes to the first half of chapter 15, I think it can be summed up in this word, and that is love. This includes the Christian duty and submission to authorities that Paul describes in the first part of chapter 13 that Pastor Luke uh, spoke on and preached on last week. So, what a beautiful forest, right? Now, let's look at the trees. The text before us this morning is going to be Romans 8, or sorry, Romans chapter 13, starting in verse 8, and we'll go through verse 14. So let's read that. Owe no one anything 
except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Let's quickly ask the Lord for his help this morning. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we do ask that you would speak to us through your word. Father, I pray that you would enlighten our eyes to your word, that you would illumine the truth from your word and that would come through me and only your truth would come through me this morning by the work of your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So beginning in verse eight, we should be sure not to forget the context of verse eight. Charging Christians to submit to governing authorities, Paul reminds them to pay to all what is owed to them. He says that in uh, verse seven of chapter 13. And although this connects verses seven and eight, we seem to have two opposing statements. Paul says to pay to all what you owe, and then right at the beginning of verse 8, he says, owe to no one anything. What does this mean? Verse 8 does not mean that you cannot owe someone something. It does not mean you you can't ever borrow something, because as soon as you borrow something, you owe them something. It doesn't mean you can never necessarily go into debt, although the Bible would say that is not wise. But what it does mean is that your payments should be paid up and on time. Pay to all what you owe so that it's as if you don't owe them anything. But Paul continues with the condition to owing no one anything, and that condition is love. There seems to be two ideas here. One is that as we know no one anything, we still owe them love. This is a debt that cannot be paid. We can never perfectly, fully, completely, always love one another. So this morning, as I woke up and I kissed my wife and I say to her, I love you, I'm not done until tomorrow morning. Not only one expression and statement of love is good enough, but also not even one million expressions and statements of love are good enough, especially not for my wife. Also, keeping in mind that owe no anything means pay to all what you owe so that it's as if you don't owe them anything, Paul exhorts Christians to complete their payments with love. So as we pay taxes and revenue, as we give honor and respect, we do this not only out of duty and obligation to the state and to the governing authorities, but we do this with loving hearts. Why? Why do we love each other? The rest of verse 8 says... For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. This is a bold statement, especially given what Paul says in chapter 7, that we are free from the law. And Paul explains it in the following verses. But before we move on, I want to note again that Paul has now connected the immediate context of verses 8 through 14 
with the beginning of chapter 13, but he's now also connected the beginning of chapter 12. The passage 12, 9 through 21 is full of of love for one another and full of acts of love. Paul does not take a break from love to talk about submitting to governing authorities in 13, 13, 1 through 7. Rather, he explains Christians' submission to authorities and their duty to the state in light of loving one another, both fellow Christians and non-believers. But once again, we are pointed in the direction of why this love. Now let's consider what Paul means when he says, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Verse 9, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Paul says that love has fulfilled the law. Well, what law? Here, as in other references in Romans, Paul is referring to the Old Testament law, the Mosaic, the from Moses law. And specifically here we see he's referring to the Ten Commandments. The listing of only four commandments is not of utmost importance, clearly as Paul adds, and any other commandments. He means to include all of the Ten Commandments, if not the entire Mosaic law. So that should not cause us uh, to to pause there as we look at uh, the the commandments listed in verse 9. Regardless, though, we see that Paul sums up the entire law in one command, to love your neighbor as yourself. Paul actually uses and and, and quotes a word from the law, Leviticus 19.18, to to sum up and say what fulfills the whole law. But maybe we're more familiar with Jesus' words as he sums up the law, excuse me, with the two greatest commandments. This is found in Matthew chapter 22, uh, verses 35 through 40. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he, Jesus, said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Wait a second. Paul left out a pretty big part there, right? Jesus says that on these two commandments, the whole law is fulfilled, loving God and loving others. What's going on, Paul? Well, once again, we keep in mind that we are in the middle of a letter. Paul is working off of all that he has already said in chapters 1 through 11. Paul has already explained the gospel and the love to God that comes from the gospel when we respond in faith. In addition, Paul is writing to the Christians in the church at Rome. He is assuming and would have had confidence in their love and devotion to God. So it seems safe to say that Paul would agree with Jesus and affirm the commandment to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. But at this time, explaining what the gospel means for Christian living, we should love one another. And Paul's quote of Leviticus and Jesus adds an additional clarification. We are to love each other, love one another, as verse 8 says, but we are to love our neighbor as ourself. So, in order to love one another, we must learn to love ourselves. We should focus on self-love and self-esteem and our personal desires, making provision for ourselves and gratifying our wants. Because once we learn how to love ourselves in this way, we can love our neighbors. No, that is ridiculous. 
In fact, verse 14 says, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. A good example and an explanation is found in in Paul's letter to the Ephesians chapter five. He's speaking of husbands and wives in verses 28 and 29 say, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Pay attention, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. We don't have to learn how to love ourselves. We probably love ourselves too much. So what Paul is saying is that in the same way that you love yourself, in the same way that you cherish and nourish yourself with the same attitude, with the same intentions, with the same energy, that is how you are to love others. And then Paul continues in verse 10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Paul's statement that love does no wrong to a neighbor is shown by the commandments he chose to list previously. All of these commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, not steal, not covet. They're all prohibitions. All of these are examples of love that do no wrong. And in a wider context of the whole law, many of the commandments are things you should not do. But that is not to say that love only means doing no wrong and that we shouldn't or we don't have to do good. Paul's introduction to this theme of love, which happens at the beginning of chapter 12, is marked by using the gifts that God has given them by his grace for the good of the whole body. And then immediately following that, he says in 12 verse 9, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, we know that, do no wrong, hold fast to what is good. Verse 14 also says, bless those who persecute you. So I don't think that Paul is defining love by saying only do no wrong. Rather, he is defining love by the law. The rest of verse 10, therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. This is the second time in this passage Paul makes this claim. So what does fulfilling the law mean? Well, let's look at what it doesn't mean. Two ways. Love fulfilling the law does not mean that we no longer have any need for the commandments. Verse 9 clearly shows us the commandments of God are ways to see how love looks in action. Specific commandments are given so we will see in concrete and practical ways what love looks like in everyday life. This implies that only true love will be expressed in the summation and the fulfillment of the law. Without love, without the law, love quickly becomes vague or sentimental. Without the structure of the law, love becomes a soft material that can be twisted and shaped into whatever image you want it to be. Often, for example, our culture defines love as just being nice. But niceness does not necessarily mean that we are acting in a loving manner. One can be acting nice and be in clear violation of God's law. Taking this further, our culture may define love as immediate gratification, specifically within sexual pleasure. Paul probably had this in mind as he says in verse 14, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality or sensuality, not in quarreling or jealousy. So the person who out of love 
commits acts of premarital sex relations or has a marital affair because I just love this person. God is a God of love, and he would not want me to not act in love. This is wrong because this love violates God's laws of purity and preventing adultery. This is a harmful, false love, and God wants a perfect love for you. Taking this further again, be careful, brothers and sisters, because Christ has defined adultery as lust within the heart. And we may say, I'm not acting on those desires. I don't love that person. I'm just a man who appreciates beauty. But are you gratifying to the desires of the flesh? Are you loving physical gratification of looking at other women, whether in person or on a computer? This is not love. You are not loving God in that way. You are not loving others in that way. And the second way of how love is the fulfillment of the law, where that does not mean, it does not mean that keeping the commandments is the sum and totality of love. Loving others is at least following the commandments, but it is also more than following the commandments. Perhaps using Paul's own example as the best illustration. You've probably been thinking of 1 Corinthians 13 for a while now as we've been talking about love. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 3, if I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love involves the affections and motivations of our heart. There's obviously no violation in giving up all that you have, including your own life. In fact, this could be seen as obedience to the law. But Paul says these things can be done without love. How? Giving up everything we have, being burned, and and some translations say as a martyr for love. Oh, wait, it's not with love. How can this be done? If they're done for selfish gain of glory and honor and praise and without affections towards others. So the point of verses 8 through 10 are seen in these bookend statements in verse 8 and then in verse 10. Verse 8 reads, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And then verse 10, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And so we see that it is this past law that defines our love for others. The law is defining our love. A good illustration that I came across in preparation, one pastor puts it this way. The commandments God gives us are like the banks of a river that control the flow of the river. When we violate God's commandments, We cause the river to run over the banks, and thus it loses its power and beauty. And if we add commandments not found in the scriptures, we widen the banks of the river so that it becomes slow and stagnant and loses its life and vitality. This perfect love that God has defined for us in the law is a powerful love. And we'll see that in a second for what that means for others. But it's also a beautiful love as we see that ultimately uh, exemplified in what Christ has done for us It also is a love that gives life. As we move forward from the fulfillment of the law, we see an urgency to love. There we are going to see the power and the life of this love. So just as a past law defines our love, so too a future glory demands our love. The next passage, verses 11 through 14, they're they're set up in, in parallel contradictions. Let's read that again. You can pick it up on it here. 
Besides this, you know the time, verses 11 through 14, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness, put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. The connection between these verses and the previous section, which has an obvious emphasis of love, may not seem that strong or present at all, yet these final verses give a call of Christians to action. Wake up, he tells them. Do not be lethargic Christians. Do not be lazy in your moral living and in your standard of Christian living, because this is a sign of your faith. In verse 11, the besides this, as the ESV has read it, or perhaps your Bible reads, and this, or do this, as other translations say, obviously refers back to verses 8 through 10. But I think it should also call to mind all that Paul has been describing from 12.1. We are to wake up and be diligent in our Christian living, which Paul has described, and we do this because salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Now, referring to Roman Christians and even to himself as he speaks in the first person there in that last sentence, he can't mean that they are not saved yet, for salvation is nearer to us now than we first believed. He's not, he's not saying that he's not saved yet, as we understand it. And here, Paul is referring to a future salvation. And this falls into a category of Christian understanding that is summed up in the phrase, already, not yet. Perhaps you've heard this. This is common when describing the kingdom of God that, that Christ even preaches. He says the kingdom of, of heaven is at hand, right? We know that we are living as kingdom citizens, but clearly the kingdom has not been fully established. So already, not yet. Um, for example, again, within the current context, we have already been saved. Christ's work on the cross needs nothing else to be done. We are free from our bondage of sin, yet we still sin. And yet we have not seen the full effect of the work of the cross because there is a future, ultimate salvation. We will see the full power and the work of Christ when we are made perfect like him because of his sacrifice and when we too have conquered death and eternal life. We have already been saved. But friends, we will be saved. So this future salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. It is clear throughout the New Testament that no one, uh, no, no one does know or will know the, the, the time of the second coming of Christ, save God the Father. So Paul is not offering his latest prediction of when Christ is coming again, just a general truth. A group of us from church yesterday ran a 5K, and as I took my first step, I was already closer to the finish line than when I first started. The people who ran with me will say that those were very quick first steps, which is why I slowed down at the end. But each subsequent step that I take, I come closer to the finish line. Paul's statement is not just a logical truth, though. That makes sense. If you take a step, you're closer to the finish line. It's not just a logical truth. It's an encouragement and a charge. Friends, you are one step closer. We should be encouraged that, as he says, Paul says in Philippians, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. When? At the day of Jesus Christ, the coming salvation. 
So we should hear, we should feel the weight of that statement. But what are the implications? Well, we continue. Verse 12, the night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Again, parallel language emphasizes the comparison of the standard of living, but also that Christ is coming again. And since he is coming again, just as we have been changed from a rebel to one of the redeemed, let us change spiritual clothes to put off the darkness, put aside the things of darkness, and put on the armor of light. This probably reminds you the armor of God. Paul speaks about in Ephesians 6, verses 11 through 13, describe the armor of God. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. Connecting verses 11 and 12, one commentator puts it this way, Christians cannot afford to remain in the unprotected condition of scantily clothed sleepers at a time when the situation calls for armor. So we put on the armor of light. But what are the works of darkness? Well, Paul lists a few examples in verse 13. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. The day is at hand, so walk appropriate to the daytime. Maybe you have heard, or some of you have given this advice, nothing good happens after 2 a.m. Maybe you were more conservative, and it was nothing good happens after midnight. But the point is, there are evil and wicked deeds associated with the night. And these are the works of darkness that we are to put off. As we put them off, he reminds us again what to put on. Our final verse, verse 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This verse explains what exactly these works of darkness are. Fleshly desires that are ruled by sin in a perspective of immediate gratification as opposed to a perspective of eternal and kingdom value. Once again, Paul tells us to put on something. We put on Christ. This causes us to think of being clothed, of being robed in his righteousness. We put on Christ to cover our sins, to forgive our sins, to be judged for our sins, to wipe our sins away in the gospel of Jesus Christ. More so, this causes us to think of putting on the armor of light, mentioned in verse 12. So all of this repetition calls us to live like Christ in the light, for the day is at hand. And we put away all darkness. If it weren't for the previous verses, 8 through 10, we could stop here. And that would be fine. This is great truth. This is, this is encouragement. This is a good challenge for us. But verses 8 through 10, in the wider context of Christian living, in particular marked by love, cause us to make the connection that this future glory shapes our love. Indeed, it demands our love. I found most helpful when referring to this idea, this theme, again, in Ephesians 
chapter 5, 1 through 16. It's a lengthy passage, so if you'd rather turn with me there to read that, you can. I will read the, the whole thing. Ephesians 5, 1 through 16. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sins of sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time, you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. And therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. As we put on Christ and his light, as we cast off our own works, the works of darkness, we must expose the darkness of others. The law defines our love for one another, and Christ's return demands it. Because although it may be a future glory for Christians, it is a future judgment for non-believers. So in love and by his light, we expose the darkness of the sin around us to point towards a righteous creator who loves his creation but cannot tolerate their sin. So he sent Christ to save, to redeem, and reconcile us back to him. Friends, just as Paul has explained the gospel and what that means for us, so too, hear the gospel and the truth of that, and then be changed. Let that shape the way you live. And as a Christian, let that living be marked by love. Show love that condemns sin, but points to the one who saves from sin. Friends, love as the law defines it. And love, like Christ is coming, now, we pray with you. Heavenly Father, God, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you, Father, that you have given us the full picture of your word and that in the law we can see that you meant to love us. And that love comes through the exposing of our own sin and that Christ comes to make us light. And so, Father, I pray that, that there are those here who would be 
uh, exposed of their sin, not in a shameful way, but in a loving way. As we bear the picture of Christ and his light to point them towards the cross and what you have done for us. And so too, Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room that we would live, that you are coming again. And we would find encouragement in that, that we will not be in these present days of darkness for long. But God, we pray that we would also see the charge and the challenge that you have given to us within that truth. That you are sending Christ to come again, to rule and to reign. And in that glory, your wrath over their unrighteousness will be seen. And so we pray, Father God, that we could point towards your righteousness, that they may be clothed in it because of what Christ has done. And we can see that love from Christ. God, be with us now as we worship in light of this truth. We pray all of this through the loving name, the saving name, the powerful name of Christ. Amen.